So good to see you and be with you this morning. This past Thursday, we finished our 40 days. We'd begun September 1st through October 10th, and I was just so pleased and grateful to you for the way y'all jumped in on this and people all over the church seeking God, raising the level of prayer, fasting in various ways, reading the Mark Batterson book or some of you the Jim Simla book, uh, so many more coming out to the prayer services. And, and I just know that God was at where everybody who participated, God met you. And I know a number of you had your big three things. Uh, some of those were answered and many of us didn't, but God met us. And so it was a great uh, 40 days, uh, though the fasting will start, will stop, I'm ready, was more than ready for that to stop, uh, the prayer will go on and increase. And so let's press in because this is the lifeblood of the church. And whatever God wants to do, a, a, a special work, he'll set his people to pray and he set us to pray. So great job, church, on that. And let me also just add in that uh, you're faithful giving week in, week out, uh, giving to God here at your church home just enables us to so much ministry here locally around the world and we couldn't do it without you and every, uh, you have a stake and a part of everything that God's doing and so way to go church. So we're in the book of Acts as you know and, and the book of Acts is all about this, it's 120 Jewish believers and now they spread throughout the Roman Empire, and by the end of the book, it, it, it's gone from a small Jewish group of believers to a large, international, mostly Gentile group that has spread to the capital of the Roman Empire, and is still spreading. And in fact, today, it is still spreading around the world. Over 100,000 people a day coming to Christ. By far the biggest harvest ever is occurring in our lifetime, in our day and age, and we want to be a part of that. So that's the book of Acts. And this main theme, the spread of the gospel, uh, there are two foundations to it. One is the power of the Holy Spirit, and the other is the prayer of God's people. So we see that the, the church spreads in the power of the Holy Spirit by a people who are devoted to prayer. Now, this is the only book in the Bible that gives the history of the early church. And what God is doing in this book is not just giving us a history lesson, but letting us know what the church is all about. And it's not about the details of how you do governance and communion and how long your service is and things like that. But it's the big picture of the church is to be the spread of the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit, devoted by people devoted to prayer. That's the things that should characterize every church, including this one. Now, last week, we saw that the first day of the church, the age of the Spirit, the Spirit was poured out. The last couple of weeks, we've seen this, and all these uh, commotion, thousands came running to the temple. Peter stands up and gives a message, and in that message, Peter does not hold back. He says, this Jesus whom you crucified, he is Lord and God, and God raised him from the dead. And he is just bold and fearless in this message. In fact, if I could read the last verse of that message, it's Acts 2.36. He says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. And 
the original language here has a way of emphasizing the word you. It's you plural, whom you, y'all, crucified. And what Peter is saying, now remember, this is the same Peter that about 50 days before, when he was asked if he was one of Jesus' followers, remember three times, oh no, not me, not me. He denied him. He was scared to death that he would get crucified to a servant girl. But here he is, less than two months later, he's standing before thousands in the temple area, and he is boldly declaring this Jesus whom you crucified. But when he says at the end of that verse, whom you crucified, uh, the, the emphasis in the original is this. It's whom you, you crucified. It's like it's underscored or put in italics. Don't miss it. I'm talking about you. Y'all crucified the Lord of glory. And so he's fearless and bold. Now, now we see the response of this crowd on the first day that the church begins. And if you'll stand with me, I'm going to read the passage. Stand with me. It's only five verses. If you're newer here, I ask you to stand each week as we read God's Word, just in honor of God's Word. And let me remind you, there are millions and millions, untold billions of words out there every day, but there are no words like these words. These words are the words of God. And let's see what God has to say to us this morning. This is Acts 2.37, where we read, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Church, this is God's word. Please be seated. All right, church, there's a lot to dig in on this passage. But remember at the start, it says right after Peter's message, when he challenges them that you crucified him, the first thing that the text says is they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. Now, that's referring to the work of the Spirit, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit. The night before Jesus was crucified, in John 16, he talked about one of the ministries of the Spirit that he's going to do. Is he's going to convict us of our sin. It's in John 16, verse 7. Jesus said, nevertheless... I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, if I do go away, but if I go, I will send him to you. And that's what just happened in Acts 2. He sent him to you. Then verse 8, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. That's what we just saw. The convicting work of the heart. And, and God vividly describes it. They were cut to the heart. And, and you know what that's, that's like, don't you? You've been convicted about your sin before. In fact, uh, when you came to Christ, 
to some degree, the Spirit of God was convicting you of your, your sin or you would not need a Savior. You would not know that you needed a Savior unless the Spirit showed you you got a sin problem. Nobody comes to Christ without the convicting work of the Spirit. That, that, that's what we get saved from, our sin, that keeps us from a holy God. And so this convicting work of the Holy Spirit that we don't talk a whole lot about, uh, it is absolutely vital or nobody comes to Christ. So it is vital. Now, it's not real fun because when you're convicted of your, of your sin, it can be painful, but it is a, it's a mercy that pain, it's a severe mercy because in his mercy to us, he shows us our sin. So that's what happens here. They were cut to the heart. Our words never lead somebody to Christ apart from the work of the Spirit. That's why it is more important to talk to God about man than to talk to man about God. This is our top five basket. Now, some of you from time to time ask you, what's that basket up there? Some of you drop prayer requests in there, and please don't do that because they'll get lost in the top five cards. Put your prayer requests in those offering baskets back there, and we'll pray for them. But, and sometimes I see them in here and dig them out and move them over. But this is top five. What's the top five for those of you who are newer? We're asking God to give us five non-Christian people around us at our work in our family, in our neighborhood that we see from time to time, and, and, and we're going we're gonna to pray for them daily that God would save them. Now, it's important as God gives us opportunity to love those people, to speak up for Christ, to share the gospel as he gives us opportunity to serve them in any way, but if we're not praying and the Spirit of God is not drawing them, they don't get saved. So that's why this is crucial. It's not the only thing we do, but it is a crucial thing that we do. So God the Spirit uh, cut them to the heart, and that convicting work is necessary. Let me give you an example of a, a modern-day person who, uh, get, who, who talked about being cut to the heart in a very graphic, vivid way. Uh, there is a young woman today who's having quite a bit of impact with her ministry, uh, and she's written a book called Gay Girl, Good God. This is Jackie Hill Perry. Notice her language about the, what God does, and see if this is not describing cut to the heart. She says, I was having a very unspiritual kind of night. The TV was on. My thoughts were boring and typical until they turned on me. Talking about her thoughts until they turned on me. And suddenly and randomly, as Paul was struck blind on the Damascus Road, I had the unsettling thought that my sin would be the death of me. So you with her? My sin was going to be the death of me. She'd had a church background, but she had wandered far from that background. But she's now cut to the heart. She goes on to describe it. She says, so when my thoughts spoke of my sin, which I knew to be a prompting from God and not my subconscious behaving unnaturally, I wasn't offended by the idea of my identity being a product of sin. She's talking about her sexual identity as a lesbian. She said, what offended me most was the idea that it, my sin, my kind of love, was to be the death of me. Because if that were true, then surely I would be asked to lay it aside for the sake of life. She goes on, so my repentance, same word that Peter uses here, so my repentance 
would not be singular. That night I knew that it wasn't just my lesbianism that had me at odds with God. It was my entire heart. I sat up in bed and thought deeply about all that was happening to me. I'd known about God for so long, but now it seemed as if God was inviting me to know Him, to love Him, to walk with Him, to be in relationship with Him. That moment, the epiphany that my sin left untreated would be the death of me wasn't a matter of trying to be straight or even trying to escape hell. No, it was about God positioning himself before my eyes so that I could finally see that he is everything he says he is and worthy to be trusted. I mean, that's, that's, that's being cut to the heart. And then she finishes, without a sermon, an altar call, or an emotionally laden music gesturing me to come to Jesus, just sitting in my bed with the TV on and the sun not yet up, I saw Jesus. He was better than anything I'd ever known and more worthy of having everything that I thought was mine to own, including my affections. They were for him to have and to be glorified with. Now, a woman, a young woman who's living a completely, uh, a complete lifestyle different from God, sitting on her bed watching TV, uh, doesn't uh, have that kind of a transformation apart from the Spirit of God opening blind eyes. And I can so remember when I was 18 years old, I'd been reading through the Bible all my senior year in high school, and I was just very hungry for God. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but looking back later, I know it's because the Spirit of God was drawing me and wooing me. And, and I so longed for Him. You may be in this room right now, and that's happening to you, that the Spirit of God is drawing you, wooing you, saying you need a Savior from your sin. And if so... Just right now, breathe a prayer and say, Jesus, come and save me. Jesus, come and save me. He will. It's not about churchianity. not about being good enough. You can never be good enough. It is about a God in heaven who loves you and sent his son to die for you. And so this is the convicting work of the Spirit that's going on here. So the crowd, cut to the heart, respond, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter responds in verse 38. Now, this verse 38 is a key passage for a number of reasons, so we're going to spend a little time unpacking it. It says, here's what he says. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's his basic answer to what, what must we do? How can we be saved? He says, repent, repent. To repent means to change your mind to do an about face, to turn around. If I could just be a little technical here, the Greek word for repentance is a word called metanoia, and that suffix on that word noia means mind. And the word repent or metanoia means a change of mind. What do you change your mind about? You change your mind about your need for a Savior. You change your mind about your sin and your need for Christ. You recognize this woman, Jackie Hill Perry, she's describing, oh, my sin is a big problem, and, and Jesus is who he said he was. You change your mind, you turn from yourself, trying to be good enough or living your own life apart from God, and you turn to Christ. Now, if you've been around Woods Edge for a while, you know that I regularly make it clear that we, that we are saved by trusting Christ alone, by faith alone. But here it says, well, by repenting. And so, you know, Jeff, what is it? Is it by, by believing in Jesus or trusting Jesus or putting our faith in Jesus? Is that how we're saved? Or is it by repenting? You know, which is it, Jeff? Well, here's the answer. They go together. To repent 
means you turn from sin to Christ. You believe in Christ. You cannot repent without believing in Christ, not biblically repenting. You cannot believe in Christ without repenting and turning from yourself and your sin. It's like, think of a coin, two sides, the same coin, that's repent and believe. They just go together. And so sometimes the New Testament, a few times, says, how do you get saved? You repent. And then a few times it says this, you repent and believe. But well over a hundred times it just says, believe, believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will get saved. Um, in fact, uh, the, probably the clearest question about how you get to heaven is in the book of Acts when the Philippian jailer in Acts 16.31 asked Paul, what must I do to be saved? And Paul is clear as day. He says, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. He doesn't mention repent, but repent is inherent in it. And uh, that's what the Bible mostly says, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him, believes in him, should not perish, but have eternal life. And on and on and on, well over a hundred times it talks about faith. But repent is the same thing. So, Peter, uh, what must we do? Brothers, what must we do? You repent. You turn from Christ. You believe in Jesus. You turn from self. You believe in Jesus. Now, he also tells them to get baptized. He says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that... uh, verse has, has, has led to some misunderstanding about, okay, is that something else I need to do to get saved? And the answer is no. Um, there are two or three passages that need to be cleared up, but well over a hundred passages that make it so clear. You believe in Jesus. For example, in the book of Acts alone, Acts 2.21, earlier in this same chapter, he had said this. He says, it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Doesn't mention a thing about getting baptized. Or the next chapter, Acts 3.19, talking about getting saved, he says, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. Doesn't say a thing about getting baptized. Or 10.43, Paul says, To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Not a word about baptism. Or 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. Not a word about baptism. And on and on and on uh, throughout the New Testament. But there are these... Uh, verses they say, that seem to be saying, well, don't you have to get baptized first? Well, let me clarify. Okay, the preposition for in the words for the forgiveness of sin, let's go back to 238. For the expression for, for the forgiveness of your sins, that preposition for can refer to something that has already happened in the past or something that's about to happen in the future. Our English word for can do the same thing. Let me give you an example. Say you lived in the Old West and you saw a wanted poster at the sheriff's office and it said, Jesse James, wanted for robbery. Oh, is that, does it, do they want him to do some robberies? The future? Or is it the past? It's because he's done some robberies. The English word for can go to the past or the future. So can that uh, Greek word for. It can refer to the past or the future. And here it refers to the past, not the future. It refers to the fact that you already got forgiveness when you believed. And you also need to get baptized in the name of Jesus. Can I give you another example that's just crystal clear? It's in uh, the same exact word and the same sort of meaning. It's Matthew 3.11. This is John the Baptist talking about baptism. And talking about repentance. Now listen to John. Okay, John the Baptist here. All those people are out there. And he says, 
I baptize you with water for repentance. Same word, for repentance. Is he uh, going to baptize them so that after that they'll start repenting? No, they've already repented. That's why they want to get baptized. Past, not the future. Same as Acts 2.38. He's referring to the fact that because of your forgiveness, because of your repentance and your forgiveness you received, now you need to get baptized. But let me underscore how important baptism is in the New Testament. It's not, you know, how you get saved, but it's because you've been saved. Past, not future. But all the New Testament emphasizes that believers get baptized. Jesus himself was baptized. He's the only person in history who didn't need to get baptized because he didn't have any sin. But as an example to you and me, he gets baptized. And then he tells his disciples, you go into all the world, make disciples, you baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So he tells us to. And then we read in the New Testament, there are no unbaptized Christians. There's a, really, there, there's one. The, 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 the man on the cross, the thief on the cross, and that's only because he's about dead. You know, he's, he's on his last seconds. But outside him... Uh, and especially in the book of Acts, we, we're just going to see thousands and thousands of people getting baptized. There are, there's no record <coughs> of unbaptized believers. And so what's baptism about? It's a step of obedience. And, and it's a step of obedience to, uh, to, to, to mark publicly that you're a believer, that you're joined to Jesus. Think of it like this. This is my wedding ring. <coughs> 39 years ago, Gail and I were married. We promised that we'd be devoted and committed to each other for the rest of our life. And we wear these wedding rings. They don't make us married, but they're a similar fact that we are married. Now, the wedding ring doesn't make me married. You can wear a wedding ring and not be married. You can be married and not have a wedding ring, but it's a symbol. That's why many of us who are married, we wear these weddings. It's a symbol. It's a pointer. Join the gale. Join the gale. Okay? Now, baptism is a symbol it's a symbol and what's it say you're joined to jesus you're joined to christ you're identified with christ he's blessed you you and i are physical beings we got a, you know the essence of it, we've got a soul but we're in bodies here and god knows that and he knows that bodies matter and we can get our hands around things if there's physical to it I think that's one reason why we can understand the Father. Well, the Father doesn't have physical, but Jesus. But the Spirit's a little bit hard for us. So God, in His grace and His mercy, has always given His people physical symbols. Now, in this day and age, the church age, we have two physical symbols. We've got baptism at the start of the Christian life, and we've got communion that we do every week. And they help us uh, just to, to cement our faith and to point us to Jesus. Help us to make it more concrete for us. We can kind of look back on, kind of like the 12 stones in the, by the Jordan River. And baptism, when the pastor or your buddy baptizes you, he lowers you into the water, and it's a symbol that you have been identified with Christ. You've been buried with Christ. And then he raises you up out of the water. It's a symbol that you've been raised to new life. And hopefully for the rest of your life, that will be just a meaningful event for you. Yes. I'm joined to Christ. Just like every week we take communion and we're reminded of the cross of Jesus. So all of that, church, if you have come to Christ and never been baptized, that's your next step. That's your next step. Now, some of you, maybe you've been believers for years and decades. You just haven't been a, got baptized since you've become believers. Well, that's no reason not to because uh, 
You know, we just sang that song about I surrender all. That means we obey the Lord. And uh, that includes baptism. Not how you get into heaven, but it's an important step of obedience. And so, if you've not been baptized, uh, don't hold back. Uh, I remember so vividly talking to a man in Turkey who held back a couple of years because this man was Kurdish. And this man was Muslim background. And there had been three Muslim believers, uh, three men had their throats cut because they're Christians. Some parts of the world, it might cost you your life. It's not going to cost you your life. It might cost you your convenience. But for heaven's sake, get baptized. Pull your, your Connect card out right on there. I want to get baptized. Drop it in an offering basket, and we'll get back to you. All righty. It's a symbol of obedience. Now, the question might be, uh, Jeff, you mean we just believe in Jesus? We just trust Jesus? We just repent and turn to Jesus? Yes, yes. Um, when you understand what the Bible says about the cross, it makes it completely clear that we do nothing to get in heaven. There's no works that we do to earn salvation. Because when Jesus died on the cross, God took all of your sin, all of your sin, and he put it on Christ, and he paid for it, and it was done. That's why he could say, it is finished. It's done. Done deal. And that's why we can sing a song like, Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Or we can sing a song like, what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. If you understand the cross, that Jesus Christ did everything that you needed done for your salvation, and you receive the gift like a beggar, that makes it crystal clear there's nothing else that we add. We just receive it. We receive it by faith, by turning to Christ. Okay. All right, this key verse um, that we needed to clarify first, what is repentance? How does baptism fit in? It's an act of obedience. Two things he points out happen when you, when you do this. When you trust Christ... Two things happen, very important things. We see in verse 38, again, repent, be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. What two things happen? First of all, the forgiveness of your sin. Now, just think about that, church. You, you sit here this morning, despite the fact that you have sinned a bunch all your life, and you're still probably going to be doing some more sinning. In fact, I know you will. Um, but... You have the forgiveness of all your sin. Yes, that is a hallelujah, Avi. That is a hallelujah. I mean, the fact that a holy God looks at me as blameless as Jesus Christ because the shed blood of Jesus covers all my sin. I mean, this is the best news ever. This is the best news ever. And, and, and if you're sitting here and you're feeling guilt for your sin, don't be doing that. Don't be listening to God. I mean, to uh, Satan's lie. Listen to God. That he says, you're under no condemnation. No condemnation. What can wash away your sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And every Sunday morning, you take that communion cup and you remind yourself, yep, the blood of Jesus. Wash me clean. Wash me whiter than snow. Okay, that's one. And the second one is that you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I've been saying how emphatic this is in the book of Acts. We are in the age of the Spirit. We live by the Spirit. 95% of Christians sort of ignore the Spirit. But after this series, you're not going to be able to do that. Because it's just week after week after week. We keep getting the reminder that we live in the power, by the strength, led by, filled by, walking in the Spirit. Let me tell you what that means. Last night, I was struggling with something. 
And I woke up this morning, early in the morning, and I was kind of struggling with it, and I was really um, upset at somebody. You, you been there? Yeah. And I, how does it work for you when you're upset at somebody, and, okay, Jeff, that, that's wrong, don't do that. And it just keeps going over and over and over. And, and, and finally, I, I realized, okay, Jeff, you've been preaching this, you might as well live it. Okay. Um, I, 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 you know, something like that. Okay, God, I, I cannot get rid of this. But I surrender it to you with your spirit, Lord God. Fill me with your spirit. Fill me with your spirit. You change it. You do it. I can't do it. You do it. So when you're struggling with sin, when you're struggling to please God, when there's anything, the power is not yours. It's the spirit's. That is the Christian life. The power of the spirit. I cannot do it. God, you can. So you surrender. You surrender. Empty yourself full of the spirit. Okay. This is the Christian life. 95% 95% of Christians ignore the Spirit, put Him on the back seat, ignore Him, neglect Him. That's not the Christian life. Spirit, I need you to empower me. All right. Okay, I think we can finally move on to verse 39. More quickly, after the last couple of verses. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Uh, last week we saw in 21 that everyone who calls on the Lord will be saved. That's the human part. And here we see that, that everybody that God calls upon will be saved. Human role, God's role. We can't, you know, sort them all out there, but the Bible teaches both. You're responsible to believe. God, in His grace and mercy, gives you the faith to believe. Both are true. Verse 40, he continues saying, With many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And then the incredible result in verse 41, those who received his word, those who believed in Jesus, received the gift, were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And so it's begun, the spread of the church. There's 120 believers, 3,000 come to faith in one day, power of the Spirit, and it's begun. And the church over the first three centuries would turn the Roman Empire upside down. It was just a little obscure, uh, they called it a sect from the eastern part of the empire of these Jews. And it just sort of transformed the empire. And those believers were willing to give their lives for Christ, literally, in the Roman Colosseum. And uh, that is our example, that we would surrender all to Christ. And it might mean our death right now in our country. It doesn't mean that, but it ought to mean our daily life. And sacrifice whatever he calls because he is worthy of our complete obedience and faith. What have we seen this morning in this brief passage? We've seen several things. We've seen that, first of all, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, they were cut to the heart, and it reminds us how vital it is that we be praying for lost people around us. If God's put on your heart some lost people, I think it's very well likely because he intends to save them and he intends to use you in your prayers. So let's be praying for our top five. And if you're in the room right now and you're not sure where you stand with Christ, then you need to just breathe a prayer right here. Jesus, save me. Right where you're sitting, you are expressing, you're calling on the name of the Lord. All right, secondly, we saw that repentance is how we come to Christ. That is, we change our mind, we turn to Christ, we, we trust in Christ. Thirdly, we saw that baptism is absolutely vital to obeying God. Symbol, the fact that we are joined to Christ. Fourthly, we've seen that the role of the Spirit in our lives is absolutely vital. This is how we live. And why don't we do this as we conclude this part. Just bow your head. 
And, and let's do this. Why don't you surrender afresh to the Spirit? Why don't you just breathe a prayer and say, Spirit, I surrender completely to you. Fill me afresh. In your own words. Stand with me, church. Lord God, thank you that you're a gracious, loving, forgiving, merciful God. And Lord, we need your power to live the daily Christian life. So Lord, fill us, fill us afresh. We surrender all to you.